Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Head over to Hulu this March where our new shows and movies will keep you streaming all month long. Catch the acclaimed movie All of Us Strangers starring Paul Mescal and Andrew Scott. Stream the new Hulu original limited series, We Were the Lucky Ones, with Joey King and Logan Lerman. And don't forget about Grey's Anatomy. Every Grey's episode ever is now streaming on Hulu. So, what are you waiting for? Go stream something new on Hulu.
And welcome along to the Funk and Soul Show. That was Stevie Wonder there and All I Do from 1980. And we started the show this week, 1981, The Commodores and Lady You Bring Me Up. So on this week's edition of the show, we are going to be delving through my archive and I'm going to play you a show which originally aired last September. Now this was a feature length interview with David Nathan, a great music journalist and interviewer who's been around the music industry for well over 50 years. Now he spent lots of time living in the UK and of course in the US as well. And throughout that time built up quite a friendship with Aretha Franklin, of course interviewing her many times and really getting involved with a lot of the artists of that era. So over the next couple of hours, we are going to air that interview and the episode in full, playing you some classic Aretha Franklin tracks, playing you some artists of the era, and of course that chat with David as well as he shares some memories, stories, and of course the breakdown of Aretha Franklin's career as well. Now this originally aired ahead of the movie being released last September, and a box set that David was working on at the time as well, a massive Aretha box set which was released on physical and also streaming services as well of well over 80 tracks. So David talks about putting that compilation together as well so you'll be hearing us talk about that later on during the interview but i hope you enjoy this look back at a classic archive show of the funk and soul show and i'll see you here next week with another edition of the show here on your favorite station the funk and soul show with jamie stocker
and very warm welcome to you. This is Jamie Stocker here on the Funk and Soul Show, bringing you two hours of classic, rare and new Funk and Soul each and every week and starting the show this week, Aretha Franklin there and Rocksteady. Now on the show this week, we've got a very special guest who's going to be joining us for the majority of the show this week. We're going to be talking to David Nathan, a musical journalist for well over 50 years, as well as known as a musical historian. Now he's been co-producing a brand new Aretha Franklin box set, releasing over 80 tracks within it, and that's going to be due out on the 10th of September. And David's going to be joining us very shortly to talk about that box set and also his career in music can also tell some stories about Aretha herself and also some of the other artists he's come about across in his time as well so very much looking forward to talking to David and be talking to him after this this is another classic Aretha Franklin track now this is Spanish Harlem
And that's Spanish Harlem there by Aretha Franklin. And I'm very pleased to be joined on the line now by David Nathan, music journalist and musical historian. Very good afternoon, David. How are you? Good afternoon, Jamie. I'm well, thank you. Thank you so much for uh, having me on the show. No, it's an absolute pleasure to have you here on the show this afternoon, David. And before we really delve in, we've got lots to talk about on this afternoon's show. We've got lots of stories and details and, of course, talk about the Aretha Franklin box as well. But we want to touch a little bit about your background as well. For people who may not know you, just get a little introduction about how you became a music journalist and a historian as such. Well, obviously, you know, when people talk about me as a historian, I didn't start out as a historian. In fact, if anyone had told me when I first started, uh, you know, pursuing my passion for soul music, back in 1965, uh, that I would ever even know remotely the term historian, I probably would have laughed at them. Um, but to, to give you some kind of background, uh, you know, I, I just start, I started officially, officially, for want of a better word, for a teenager in 1965, in, in forming the um, Nina Simone UK Appreciation Society. Because, of course, I felt that Nina, who was at that point quite unknown in Britain, uh, or in fact in Europe in general, uh, was deserving of being called, having an appreciation society rather than a fan club, even though she referred to it as a fan club. So you could say my begin, the beginning of the journey, so to speak, in an official sense, began then. Um, and, um, you know, uh, from there, well, I guess the next key event would have been... Um, when I started the record shop and um, a subsequent record label called Soul City in, uh, in London, in Deptford, on Deptford High Street, with Dave Godin, uh, the former founder of the Tamla Motown Appreciation Society, and a uh, third, third person, Rob Blackmore, was a friend of Dave's. And we started, so that was probably like the next main thing that happened in my, quote, um, journey to being a, his, a soul music historian. I'm sure you get asked this an awful lot of time, but where do you remember that first point in time where you first remember hearing R&B music? You know, was it through Nina Simone or, you know, do you remember that first time you heard R&B music in itself? Yeah, well, it's an interesting question, Jamie, and, and when I tell people, I've occasionally had people look at me a little bit like, really? So there are two, there are two answers to the question. The, the, direct, the direct answer would have been with the record Walk On By, by Dionne Warwick, as we call her in England, and in America, Dionne Warwick. Um, but prior to that, uh, because that was the first, well, let me just say, that was the first record that I totally, like, I, re- I still have the 45, believe it or not, I still have the 45 on Pi International. <laughs> and um, that just captured my imagination. I just loved the singing. I loved her, her, the kind of melancholy in her voice I mean everything about the record but prior to that um how I first became aware of of, of I guess you could say American R&B which is what we called it back then would have been through the Beatles because the Beatles recorded a number of uh, covers of songs originated by American R&B artists and uh they meant that in the back on the back of the LP covers where they had notes about the, the LP or about the Beatles, they would mention the original version. So, for example, the Marvelous, Please, Mr. Postman, um, the Miracles, You Really Got a Hold on Me, the Shirelles, Baby, It's You. Uh, I don't know if they ever mentioned Twist and Shout, having been done by the Isley Brothers. They might have, I don't remember. But I remember those three in particular. And that kind of piqued my 
interest because I, you know, as a teenager in 1963, uh, 64, you know, I, I, you know, wanted to be like everyone else. I wasn't like wanted to be like everyone else, but but more like I, you know, was drawn to the Beatles because you know I'm I'm like 16, 17 years old, and that's you know, the Beatles were everywhere, and um, so so yeah, so so that was kind of my first knowing about or being aware of this other other kind of music because other than that all I ever heard really on the radio here in, in Britain was pop was British pop music if you see me walking down the street and I start to cry each time we meet walk on Stop. Walk on by. 
know that some of it was influenced by American R&B, um, but that's how I started to become aware of it. And the very first concert I ever saw was in October of 1964, and it was the Beatles with special guest Mary Wells at the place, a place called the State Cinema. Uh, the building still exists, and it was a cinema that they occasionally had the, uh, stage shows on, in, in, on, uh, which was located right next to um, where I lived. Um, my dad managed a fish and chip shop called Crusoe's, and we lived above the fish and chip shop, like several, several, several stories up, I should say. There were a few kind of, um, you know, it wasn't like we lived directly above it, but it was in the same building. And, uh, and my dad got tickets for me and my sister to go see the Beatles and Mary Well. So, so I guess so that was a, that was a, that was a quite an astounding evening, as you could probably imagine. I was seventeen at the time. Just a little bit more soft. Oh yeah. Oh, you ain't. 
Obviously, you mentioned there seeing the Beatles as your first concert, and going from there, obviously, you were a few years yet away from the northern soul scene really booming. But what was it like for you, sort of, then seeing more of these artists gain reputation, having a bit more exposure here in the UK? And how were you listening to those tracks? Kind of to create more of how it really happened. Um, you know, there was well, particularly TV show. There was one particular TV show, Ready City Go. Fortunately, uh, was produced by a lady called Vicky Wickham who uh, went subsequently on to manage the group uh, LaBelle and did many other things in, in the music industry subsequently. But she was very much a fan of American R&B, as was one of her good friends, Dusty Springfield. So, of course, they really promoted this music. And so we got to see on, on, on Friday nights on Ready City Go some of these artists for the first time, who we had never heard of. I can, I can remember people like Lou Johnson and Inez and Charlie Fox and Betty Everett and Doris Troy. And I mentioned Dion, she, of course, she was on it. And, uh, and so, so that was really like, it was really this small group of people who were very passionate about this music. And by virtue of having like the program Ready, City, Go, kind of took it mainstream to a larger audience. So, um, you know, of course, they had all the British artists on too, like you know, The Who and, and The Rolling Stones and, you know, I, I mean, Sandy Shaw, all the, the artists of the day, Manfred Mann, were also on Ready, City, Go. But, but by virtue of people watching it for that, for those artists, they got to see the American artists come, who came over. So that was really kind of how it, the kind of genesis of how it grew and, um, you know, and, and people became so fascinated and, and they loved the music. So you know, then, then we're having Soul City and, you know, then moving on to, uh, you know, a year or so later, we have 
the emergence of Blues and Soul magazine. So a lot of things kind of happened all around the same time. So that period of time from like 65 to, I'd say, probably 1970 was very kind of um, engaging. There's a lot going on, you know, artists coming over to perform, you know, um, just a lot happening. It was really like how the British audiences really embraced this music. And of course, I was part of the audience as much as anything else. You mentioned the popularity of it growing up. So the 60s go on, you've got people coming over here doing live shows and even some labels actually doing entire tours around Europe, weren't they? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, one of the uh, probably one of the most astounding concerts I ever saw uh, was in um, the spring of 1967 when the Stax Vault Review came. And so the Stax Vault Review, of course, was um, headlined by Otis Redding. Uh, and then with Sam and Dave, you know, Booker T and the MGs were basically the rhythm section for the whole show, of course. Uh, the Marquis horn section, uh, Eddie Floyd, who am I missing? Uh, I think special guest was Arthur Conley. Uh, Carla Thomas was on some shows. So, you know, that, that was such an incredible, uh, incredible adventure. I mean, you know, to see, I mean, I'm just trying to have you imagine, you know, what that was like for, for 17, 18 year old year olds seeing this music right here. You know, the no, no,
something about it because sometimes this doesn't get kind of mentioned very much but part of it was also from a standpoint of the artists and the record companies involved um let's just take stacks as an example i mean they traditionally those artists did not perform much in america before you know frankly white audiences they were primarily artists that performed before black audiences um, because even then, you know, even though the, the records might have done well in America, they weren't, they still hadn't like crossed over to mainstream television shows or, you know, they couldn't really just go perform anywhere. So when they came to Britain in particular or, or other parts of Europe, and I remember hearing this from some, you know, talking to people at the time, they were astounded, astounded to find an audience that was Mostly, not entirely, but in, you know, mostly made up of white young Brits, and, and and they couldn't. It was such a, it's such a big deal, you know. Thinking about the kind of background of where they were coming from in America, where things were still very, very divided in terms of race, and for recording artists, it there were very few people who were considered like mainstream across the board and, and so really when they came to Europe one of the things I think many of the artists of the day and the Motown artists as well felt like they finally had broke you know they had a, a, an audience 
that was there because they loved the music and, and, and it had nothing to do with race, so to speak. Do you know what I mean? Like they, they could, I think they, it showed them that the music could appeal to everyone. And that was a big deal back then. Otis Redding there and his take on the Beatles Day Tripper. My guest on the show this week is music journalist and historian David Nathan. Now, David, we've been talking a little bit about your first introductions into R&B soul music and obviously some of your memories of the mid-60s. And we're going to be moving on a little bit now into where you first got into touch and started speaking to Aretha Franklin, which went on to be a lifelong friendship. So first of all, let's talk about that introduction first of all with Aretha. How did you first get contact and where did you first hear of the music with Aretha Franklin as well? Yeah. Well, that actually happened uh, in 1966. In the, t- in the times that we live in now, Jamie, it's kind of hard, I think, probably for people to imagine uh, that the only way you could contact someone in America Certainly, if you couldn't, you couldn't afford to just call them on the phone. You had to go through the international operator and all that, and it cost a fortune. Was to write to someone, and that meant get out your pen and paper, write a letter, and go to the post office and send it. That was it. That was no. There's no like other way to contact people, um, and other than if you were in business, in which case I guess you did call people on the phone. But anyway. As a fan, you know, I um, really introduced to Aretha's voice 
in a very strange way. Um, I mentioned before about Nina Simone, and as the founder of her Appreciation Society, in June of 1965, uh, when I met her at the airport with flowers, and uh, <laughs> I, try, I, I sometimes wish I had photographs of this moment, but anyway, um, you know, she asked me who I listened to other than her, her music. And uh, I mentioned Dion, and she'd never heard of her at that point. Uh, Nina hadn't heard of her, anyway. And she asked me if I'd heard of Aretha Franklin. And I said I kind of heard the name. And she basically said, you need to check her out. You need to check her out. She's amazing, blah, blah, blah. And so I thought, okay. So I kind of stored that in my memory banks. And then a few months later, I was I was at a beach party in Littlehampton, uh, uh, which was held by the Dion Warwick, Dion Warwick and Shirelle's fan club. So it was like a, you know, a little outing. And somebody brought a portable record player and they put on uh, an, an imported LP by Aretha, imported into the UK, obviously, um, of Running Out of Fools was the LP, LP title. And they decided to play Walk On By because obviously you were at the Dion uh, you know, gathering. And I thought, I said, who is that? Who is that? I was like nuts because I never heard anyone who sounded like Aretha Franklin. And anyway, to cut, cut a bit of the story short, um, I then made it my mission to find as many Aretha Franklin records as I could. And at that point, she was on Columbia Records and only one of her LPs were, was issued in Britain. So all my pocket money from my... Um, working at a record shop on Saturday mornings, went on imported LPs. And there were, I, I got every Aretha Columbia LP I could find, but I just, there was something about her voice that I couldn't, and this is before she was having hits, and I just got so mesmerized by her sound, and, you know, I wasn't familiar, that familiar with gospel music at all, so I didn't realize what, a lot of what she was doing was bringing her gospel background to pop and jazz. I didn't realize that, but I loved it. So I wrote, I wrote, I wrote a letter to her, sent her a fan letter, care of her father's church. I didn't have an address, so I just put care of CL, Reverend C.L. Franklin, New Bethel Baptist Church, Detroit, Michigan, USA, and hoped somehow she'd get it. And, and I thought, well, bet nothing, I didn't hear anything for a little while, so I thought, well, bet maybe I should find if there's an address somewhere. And CBS Records in London uh, sent me a promotional photograph of Aretha, and it had an address, which was her management's address, which I didn't realize was her husband. And so I wrote a backup letter to there. And I don't know which of the letters she got, or maybe she got both of them. But anyway, about three months later, I got a, a letter from Aretha saying, I didn't have any fans in England. And Well, she didn't really. <laughs> she had me. Maybe about three other people, the one who bought the Run Out of Fools LP, uh, and a few other people didn't know who she was. And, and so that was what happened in, in the early part, well, in the kind of spring, autumn of the year. And when we had Soul City, the record shop, because we were a new business and we were starting out, starting out, our Christmas bonus was we could call anybody in America, any artist in America, if we could get the number. And so I you know, looked on this photograph, like I said, with the, with the information about her management, also had a phone number. 
And so place a call to the international operator and they called Detroit and called the number and her, her husband manager picked up the phone and said, and they said, oh, it's a call from England, uh, from David, David. And, and, and so he said, hold it. He said, hold the phone, hold on. And he put his hand over the phone and he said, Aretha, phone from England. And she came to the phone and she said, oh, I've never spoken to anyone in England before. I mean, when I tell people this, they can't quite get their head around it. Like, but you have to understand she was not like known in America. She was barely known in America. I mean, she was very under the radar. And, and, and for her getting a phone call from someone in England was actually a big deal. I mean, it really was. She was like, oh, you know, I'm hoping I can come over there sometime. And uh, she said, I just signed to Atlantic Records. I said, yeah, I read about it. She said, well, I, I'm going to go in the studio next month, which would have been January. And uh, so well, I can't wait to hear the music. And she said, well, I can't wait to do it. And, and that was the first conversation we had. Nothing you could say could tear you away from my guy And nothing you could do cause I'm stuck like glue to my guy I'm sticking to my guy like a stamp to a letter Like birds of a feather we just stick together And I'm telling you from the start I can't be torn apart from my guy Nothing you could do could make me untrue to my guy. My guy. And nothing you could buy could make me tell a lie to my guy. My guy, my guy, my guy. I gave my guy my word of honor to be faithful, and I'm gone. You best be believing I won't be deceiving my guy. As a matter of opinion, I think he's tops And my opinion is he's the cream of the crop As a matter of taste, to be exact He's my ideal as a matter of fact And no mess of a man could ever take my hand from my guy To being happy We are There's not a man today Who could take me away From my guy Take 
off that initial phone call in that case then how did it then move on from there and did you ever get the chance to meet Aretha Franklin in those early days yeah well here's what happened um I I, I wrote my first article um for Blues and Soul uh, I had I did it under an alias actually Dave Golden had a little bit of thing about having us promote other other ventures like Blues and Soul initially so he didn't want me to write it under my name. So I wrote a piece about Aretha under the name Simon Frazier. I don't know where the name came from. I made it up. And I think it was in Blues and Soul number one, when blues is, when it went from home of the blues to blues and soul. So it was, it was a tribute to Aretha. It was talking about Aretha Franklin. And then in May of 1968 um, is is when she came to England. She came to England in, in, in May. She was a European tour in the, in the spring of 1968, and ahead of that, I wrote a piece uh, for Blues and Soul under my name uh, called Aretha's Artistry. And, um, you know, at that time, Atlantic Records had a, I guess you call it like an appreciation society for Atlantic, which was run out of the Polydor office by a lady called Janet Martin. And they had this kind of society called the Uptight and Out of Sight Society, and I stayed in touch with Janet Martin, and I did an article for their magazine about Aretha. And um, Jerry Wexler saw the article, and he was thrilled, 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 thrilled that somebody in England was taking notice of Aretha, because this is in the first six months of her being on Atlantic. And he sent me a personal copy of the promo of Baby, I Love You. I was like, wow, the single... I mean, you can't, can you, I'm trying to imagine, Jamie, what this is like. I'm, you know, I'm like, I get a letter from Jerry Wexler with this promotional copy and thanking me for helping to, you know, spread the word about Aretha and blah, blah, blah. So it was lovely and amazing. And in 1968, I went to the airport when Aretha arrived at Gatwick. She was arriving from Sweden, in fact. And um, I met her with some flowers. Her, her husband, Ted, was there. Her sister, Carolyn, was there. And the other two background singers, and you know, I, my sister came with me, Sylvia, and we, we gave her the flowers, and I introduced myself to her, and she was very kind, very cordial, and then she got whisked away, of course, by the Atlantic Records people, and um, I went to the shows. I went to see both shows that she did at, Finch, at the Hammersmith, and uh, so that yeah, so there was a direct contact then, yeah. She spoke there about the first time you met her in here in the UK. Do you remember the first time you actually sat down and actually had an interview with when her? When she came over in 1970, she was here for uh, doing some shows. And so I went to the shows. I think the one that I'm remembering was at the, was also, was it Hammersmith? Was that Hammersmith or Finsbury Park, uh, Astoria, one of the two. So I saw her at those shows. I also got in touch with her through her, man, through her booking agent, Ruth Bowen, the late Ruth Bowen. I found out from Janet from the Atlantic office where she was staying. I sent her over some flowers. And um, she said, well, why don't you come to the studio, meaning Top of the Pop studio. I'm, I'm going to be doing a television thing. So I, I went to Top of the Pops and uh, I, you know, met up with her there. And it was, was it informal. It wasn't like a business thing. I wasn't representing anyone. I was just there to say, hey. And we had a lovely little chat. And... Um, she, you know, she knocked everyone out. I mean, it was amazing. She knocked people out when she went to the piano and played Don't Play That Song. And she looked really well. She had just had a 
a fourth son. She had a baby a few months before and looked very trim and afro and just looking really, really great. She looked really well. And um, so then that conversation I had with her in, in the backstage, or in our dressing room, I should say, at Top of the Pops, um, turned out to be an interview. It wasn't an interview, but a story about Aretha with quotes from her which, because uh, I called John Abbey at Blues and Soul, and I said, listen, you know, is Aretha doing any interviews? He said, no. I said, oh. I said, well, could I, um, could I write a story about it? Because I chatted with her. He said, I'd love it. And that became the Aretha uh, cover story in August of 1970. So we did maintain as best, you know, whenever I could, you know. I, you know. I don't know that she came here many times after that. I'm trying to remember in the early 70s. I'm, I'm trying to, I don't think she was here much in that time period. And then in 1974, I went on holiday to America, to New York, and I saw her perform at Radio City Music Hall in New York. And then in 1975, I moved to New York to start writing for Blues and Soul. And that was really the beginning of when I would see Aretha on a more regular basis. And then more in the capacity as a music journalist that kind of morphed into uh, a, a personal friendship over time, over time, of course, yeah.
Wise point in 1970, her career was starting to move up quite a bit. You know, through the years, did she always recollect those early days of, you know, you being a fan of her music and that friendship building from there? Well, she might not have remembered all the details. She did remember that I had, you know, contacted her and been in touch with her uh, before she even was with Atlantic Records. She, she remembered, she had memory of the fact that we had been in contact somehow in 1966. And I think that that, that my showing how much I was really appreciating her music even before she became, quote, famous internationally, it, it left an impression on her. And that's, I think, what created the foundation for us to have uh, many, many years of, of being in touch with each other. And by virtue of the kind of, uh, of way we related with each other, I got to see a lot more than just a human being. Uh, as much as I got to see the artist, and she was very, she, at that time, she, she was very wary about doing interviews because of stuff that had happened in America with the press. So um, when I was living in, in, in America, um, she was usually quite, uh, well, in fact, I'd say, I, I don't remember any time when she said no to doing an interview with me. And they became more and more like, um, you know, informal, Although there were interviews to be published, but they were they were a lot more relaxed. So, so probably some of my fondest memories include, um, you know, when she um, um, signed to Arista Records in 1980, and she called me at uh, she called me when I lived in Manhattan at the time, and it was an unexpected call. It was unscheduled, <laughs> and she just said, "Hey, David, I know when I say that people think." They can't. They try to imagine, you know, this you know, Aretha Franklin calling someone and saying, "Hey, David." But it was the kind of nature of our of our of our relationship at that point. She can call and say, "Hello, can I speak to Mr. Nathan?" And it was like, not would have been weird. So anyway, so I just signed to Arista, and I would love you to hear the new LP before it comes out. Uh, is there any way you can come out to LA, and I'd like to play it for you? And I'm like, "Yeah." Um, I said, "But I have a condition." So you can imagine at the other end of the phone, she was wondering what I was going to say. And I said, well, I, I know you are very famous for your cooking. And um, I'd like you to make me some peach cobbler, which is an American dessert. And she said, OK, no problem. So, you know, we worked out the date. And um, when I flew out to L.A., uh, I, I called her that, you know, I was just before I left to go to the interviews in the evening. And I said, I just want to check. You didn't forget about the peach cobbler, did you? She said, no, it's right here. So that's the kind of memory that, you know, I, I mean, honestly, and this is not to say anything bad about the other artists I've interviewed, but nobody ever, you know. Yeah, genuine acts of kindness done by her. Well, yeah, you know, and I got to the house and, she said, well, let's, let me give you some peach cobbler before I play the album. I'm like, all right, then. <laughs> and it was just a real kind of, you know, I sometimes have a hard time expressing it because it could come across like, I guess it could come across to some people like, Ooh, how did you get to do that? You know, but it was really a genuine um, mutual respect. I, I want to kind of jump forward a little bit, Jamie, to tell you that many, many, many years later, many years later, in fact, within the last decade of her life, uh, when Aretha came to um, 
well, last couple of decades of her life, I should say. Um, she came out to L.A. when I was living in L.A. at that time. And um, she performed for the first time in Los Angeles uh, for many, many years because she stopped flying in 1983. And the only way she could get to L.A. from Detroit was by her famous bus, the Queen of Soul bus. Anyway, so I went to the concert. It was amazing at the Greek theater. And she invited me to to the party she was having for friends and family um, to celebrate coming out to L.A. And uh, there was a moment at the party where she was just sitting by herself, just for a few minutes. Um, and I just, you know, came up to her and said, can I sit down? She said, sure. And I just, I just wanted to thank you for all the years of doing interviews with you and just really... You know, I really appreciate your mu- how, how your music's made such a difference for me, but I also really, just really thank you for, you know, giving me the opportunity to to do, do to write about you. And, and she looked at me and she said, she, she kind of teared up a little bit, and she said, well, David, she said, I want to thank you for all the years of writing those articles. She said, really, you really, all those blues and soul articles, she said, thank you so much. And we just smiled, and um, and in that moment, I realized that what, what 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 was there was like a mutual respect. It wasn't just oh, here's David Nathan, the journalist. It was like a real kind of honest bond. And um, yeah, so anything that I've done since then about Aretha, you know, and and before, is really is really based in my um, appreciation for her music and her art. But and my appreciation for her as a human being, and she was when I got to know her, she was very very funny. She even told me she even told me Jamie naughty jokes which I cannot tell on the air. I'm sorry. What a fool believes he sees.
So how did you end up working with record labels in order not just to be involved with co-producing this new box set, but other records in the past as well? Over years, I've written a lot of liner notes for the CD reissues um, of her music. And I also um, did a lot of research. I'm very grateful to Sony, of course, that was originally Columbia, you know, that gave me access to finding out all about the unreleased stuff she had on, on, on Columbia. And then uh, when I lived in Los Angeles, I used to do a lot of work. I began doing a lot of work, uh, reissue work, for, with Rhino, Rhino Records, which is the catalog division of Warner Music Group. Part of that was going into the tape vaults and literally pulling out every box that had Aretha's name on it because they had moved tapes from from New York and some of them were not logged into their database. So what a, what a wonderful opportunity to just for days and days just go in and find boxes with Aretha's name on them. And um, I found some real treasures in there, including demos she did in 1966 and all kinds of like amazing stuff. And at that time, which was 2002, um, there were no specific plans to make any of that available. But over time, you know, um, when uh, Rhino started to work on different aspects of her catalog, some of finding that material became useful. And in particular, I found a a whole tape that was um, just marked Aretha Philadelphia Natra. And Natra was an American um, uh, radio music, well, it was a music industry, but radio, primarily a radio, a black radio association where DJs would get together and catch up with record company people and all kinds of things like that. And she performed at Natra in 1972, but this box just had Aretha Natra live, or Aretha Natra Philadelphia. And they transferred the tapes. And here was a whole album that was recorded live, and it was great. So the person at Rhino said, um, well, let's put it out, because they owned it. It was in their library. And is that the one that ultimately became the Record Store Day release this year, the Live in Philly vinyl? It, it came out originally on a limited edition CD. And when it sold its first run, they didn't re- make any more copies. So it was not available on CD. And so this year, it's now been finally released, uh, reissued, I should say, as an as an LP. Aretha, oh me, oh my, live in Philly. And I, I, you know, I, I, I take pride in saying that I, you know, found that tape. I found the tape. Otherwise, it would I don't know what would happen to it. So, yeah, so that's how I became really part of the Aretha Franklin, um, you know, legacy of uh, 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 and being like an archivist, so to speak. And um, so it was kind of a natural, a natural extension of that. Um, after she uh, passed away in 2018, I was approached by a guy here in London uh, who was working at Warner Music Group at the time, Tim Fraser-Harding, who asked me if I could work on some Aretha-related projects because, you know, they, of course, controlled a very important part of our catalogue. And I said, sure. And that was really the beginning of me doing more work on, on her legacy, so to speak. And um, ultimately, yes, working with Patrick Milligan at Rhino, to produce this career-spanning box set, which was originally supposed to come out in 2020 at the same time as the film. And as we know, the pandemic kind of put pay to 
the film coming out up then so they postponed the box set and here we are now and it's finally come out in its full 4cd glory I'm telling you, it's not too late. I did you wrong. Yeah. My heart went out to play. But in the game, I lost you. What a Funk and Soul Show. This is Jamie Stocker with a very special show this week, talking in depth to David Nathan, musical journalist, historian, and of course co-producer of the brand new Aretha Franklin box set, which is going to be out on the 10th of September, and that's one of the tracks taken from it. It's a duet with Smokey Robinson, and that's Aretha Franklin, the audio taken from Soul Train, and that is Ooh Baby Baby. Now David, about that story itself, where did you first hear that Ooh Baby Baby version of that track, and how important was it for you to get it included in this box set? I was fortunate enough when I lived in New York at that time, Soul Train was part of my you know, Saturday Saturday morning ritual. Um, of course, I remember very vividly when it was an Aretha special on Soul Train. And I remember, uh, you know, John Cornelius, the host, was interviewing her and talking to her. And, and he says, you know, we have a very special guest who's a longtime friend of yours, Smokey Robinson. And Smokey comes out and Aretha, of course, we had to pretend like she was surprised. <laughs> <laughs> the magic of TV. <laughs> yes, yes. And then he sat at the piano with her and, and she you know, started playing Ooh Baby Baby and they started singing together. And it was like, wow. And you could see there was genuine, you can see if you look at the video, there's genuine like friendship there. These two people have known each other since they were school kids. And yeah, you know, Aretha was a little mischievous. You know, she she could be a little, she could be sometimes a little flirty, and you can see she's kind of she's kind of swooning a little bit about Smokey. Really, she is. You can see it. And 
But the audio is just like, wow. And kind of leaves you the question, why did they ever do a whole album together? And what are the particular favorite tracks that you've unearthed actually on this journey for this box as well? Any particular favorite tracks of yours from it? There are a few, Jamie. There's a few in particular that are really uh, just precious. I mean, precious to me. So one, I guess, for sh- is definitely the what we call a work tape of the song Angel. And the song Angel has always been one of my favorite, favorite Aretha uh, recordings. Um, as, as, as people probably know, certainly if they've heard it, they know, she talks about uh, her sister Carolyn um, having uh, written a song for her or wanting, wanting to hear it. And, um, and so what we have on the box set is um, Aretha working out an arrangement of, of Angel. Um, at the piano, yeah. and basically kind of telling the musicians how, you know, th- how they should follow her because you know th- there was nothing else to work with. I mean, it wasn't like, you know, it, she wasn't re-recording something that she that had been done before, and so there were a lot of different takes. There's probably about fifteen different pieces of of of, of the recording. In other words, you know, there's some stuff. Yeah, you know, as as you, I'm sure, know, Jamie and listeners know. Every recording you hear isn't what was there at the beginning. You know, there's a lot of stopping and starting, you know, let's try it again, um, stop halfway through. And, and so this particular, um, this particular track, um, I think you really hear Aretha in her element, the real art of Aretha, like playing the piano, working out the arrangement, talking to the musicians, and it's just beautiful. It's un- there's, there's no, there's virtually no other accompaniment on it, and there's no, there's no strings, there's no horns. It's just her with a few other musicians working it out. And I, I loved, I love the song. The song is gorgeous, 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 gorgeous. So, um, yeah, I, I think that's one of them. Nobody knows where to turn, so I have to do the speaking part, right? Yeah. Okay. When I get ready to turn. Bye, Aretha, when you can. I've got something I want to say. When I got there, she said, rather than go through a long, drawn-out thing, I think the melody on the box will explain. Gotta find me an angel. Fly away with me 
It's a truly stunning version of that track, isn't it, David? And what's your first thoughts when you actually unearth and hear something like that for the first time, knowing that that hasn't probably been heard since the day it was laid down? Oh, man, it, 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 it truly, it, it is, wow. It, I feel so, uh, you know, honestly, the word honoured or blessed or, or, or grateful that I 
can have an opportunity to share, you know, the art of Aretha, you know, you know to hear the music before it was really fully formed. I mean, because I feel great. And when other people hear it and they love it too, I mean, that, 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 that track is from the Quincy Jones sessions she did. And uh, for an you know, album, which album was not one of her more successful albums, unfortunately. Um, but the song and that recording was a hit. Uh, and yes, yeah, it's, it's just thrilling. It's thrilling to me. It's just, it's just a thrill, man, to know that I can, that I found this box, you know, found boxes of, you know, Aretha vocals that, you know, it's the multi-track. So it's not actually the even, they're not even mixed. I mean, they did mix them, obviously, for, for a release on the box set. But I don't know. It's just like hearing someone at work. I mean, the only thing I always regret is that there's no video to see of her actually working that stuff out in the studio. Because back then, you know, videos were not exactly uh, the thing. <laughs> Uh, and you know, I, I have some other favorites that that that, that are, they're not necessarily you know um, obscure or not. So I mean, one I, I I love the work. Some of the stuff she did with Luther Vandross, I love Jump to It. I I have a little story about Jump to It, which I did not really share much about. So maybe it's the first time I'm sharing. I not the first time, but but the first time I'm broadcast doing it in an interview. Just accept the kind of scene for you. Um, when I lived in New York. Um, I, I did an interview with Luther um, as part of um, a blues and soul. It was a blues and soul story when he had a group called Luther, which was like a quartet actually at the time. He recorded two albums for Cotillion Records. And after the interview, probably about within the first couple of weeks of that, he and this was 1976. Um, I was on my the street I lived on West 56th Street, and um, and he was walking down the street, coming the other way. And he, he said, aren't you the blues and soul person? I said, yeah, yeah, David. He says, hi. I said, how are you? He said, I'm fine. So he said, what, what, what? He didn't say, what are you doing here, like, accusatory? Like, he said, well, you know. I said, oh, I, I live in this building. He said, do you? He said, I live in that building. It was the next building. My building was like five-story building, not a big building. And his was like the 11-story high-rise next door. <laughs> <laughs> anyway... He said, oh, I didn't know we were neighbors. Oh, yes. Anyway, we kind of, you know, chatting. He said, you know, they come over sometimes, listen to some of the music I like and blah, blah, blah. So that was the beginning of like a very informal kind of friendship. And um, so now fast forward to 1981, and Luther has finished recording his first album for Epic. And he invited me to come over to listen one evening. I remember, I think it was... I think it was a Thursday evening. I don't know why it sticks in my mind that way. And he said, can you come out? I want to play you something. And he had just finished recording, like I say, this album. And I sat down and he put on uh, his version of A House Is Not A Home. And I didn't speak. I literally was speechless. I didn't know what to say. And he thought I didn't like it. And I said, I said, Luther, I, 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 as you hear I'm taught how I am now, right about it, I, I, can't, I, I can't believe you've done what you've done with that. Because I knew the song from, from Dion uh, and, and also from Brooke. I didn't know Brooke Benton, who had done it first, but I, did, I didn't know that his version. But yeah, so I was completely like blown away. And that started a tradition between Luther and I that he would play me music for his albums before they came out. 
And sometimes it'd take me on a maybe just ride around Manhattan. And you say, here's the next album. What do you think of it? What do you think of it? Before they, he's turned it into a record company, which was amazing. So here we are. It's 1982. He calls up and says, David, David, you know, I've just, I've just, I've just finished, you know, working with Aretha and I, I want to play you this track. It wasn't a whole album. I said, all right. I have no idea what to expect. So it shows up where I was working actually at the time. And um, he, um, I jumped in his car or Jeep. I don't know if it was a car or a Jeep, but anyway. Uh, and he puts it on. And, and I, I was, I was like, I couldn't find words. I mean, this is jump to it. This incredible Aretha taking Aretha right back into the groove and she's funny on it. And, you know, it's all kind of, it's kind of like a little witty, you know, you know, you know I got to go now, you know, you know, talking to Kitty, this imaginary person, probably was something she knew about why she got to go now, you know, because um, she got to jump to it. And I thought that was brilliant. So even though, I'm, not even though, I know it was a big hit, but it's absolutely still one of my favorite Aretha Franklin recordings. Jump to it, yeah, yeah. Thank you. 
How like sheer chances of just bumping into somebody can allow you to then have a, a relationship with people in that way, sort of out of something that's appeared out of nowhere, yeah, you know? Yeah, definitely, definitely, definitely. I mean, that, it's kind of like interesting how, how that happens, you know, Jamie. I think about yeah, other instances in my life that 
it, it literally is like that. You, 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 you can't, you know, we, we might plan how we're going to do things, but we can't really plan for, you know, um, I guess what you call destiny or happenstance or whatever you want to call it, you know, that, that things happen that are unplanned and they, you know, they can create all kinds of amazing opportunities and possibilities and, and events that when I look back on them, I go like, wow, it's kind of maybe being in the right time at the right place or who, who knows what. It really is. Yeah, fate really acts in funny ways. So let's talk about the vinyl box set and the CD box set as well. It's going to be available on the 10th of September, David, isn't it, on Rhino Records. Where can people get hold of it and what can people expect with the box set itself? As with all products in these times we live in, uh, it will be available on Amazon and all the yeah, online uh, on, online um, outlets, so to speak. Um, I believe, I'm not 100% sure about this, Jamie, it probably will be available to stream uh, the same day. I know in America, it is streamable. If, you, if you're like a Spotify person, rather than a, I want the, the actual four CDs, uh, you can stream tracks. You can't stream all of them, but you can stream some of them. But I, I recommend people buy it because the box set is beautifully done. It's beautifully designed. It's got great photographs in it. And you can really relish the music. It's got a fab front cover oh, as well, yeah, hasn't it's it? It's gorgeous. It's gorgeous. It's a beautiful, it really is fitting in terms of, you know, who the subject of the, of the box set is. It really is about Aretha's legacy. And, and I'm just really it's so proud of it. I mean, I kind of think of it as like my crowning achievement so far and uh, you know and to, again to give props to the person who I work with on it Patrick Milligan as the co-producer um, so people can buy it yeah I think on all the, those outlets um, and I guess they'll also be able to order the vinyl if they want to do it like that I'm sure there are some record companies I, I was going to say record companies I'm sure there's still some record shops here and there in Britain and likely they would they would have it too so yeah um, yeah so, so that's September 10th Anyone who does collect vinyl, you know, it's great to have obviously the vinyl as well. But I really recommend anyone to actually go out and get the CD version. You get the all the tracks and yeah. all the extra stuff that comes with it as well, don't you? Exactly, exactly. Yeah, yeah. And the the, the other thing is that the, the, the obviously the box set has essays in it. I, I did an essay. Uh, one of the um, main writers from Detroit uh, did, did a second, did an essay too. That I also did annotations on different of the unreleased material. So um, that gives good people an insight into to what some of those tracks are about. So yeah, it, it's a beautiful, beautiful, beautiful package, and I'm really so elated, thrilled, and I feel like it's the right way to honor somebody who's been a part of my who's been part of my life for such a long time. And around yourself as well, David, obviously you still do an awful lot of things outside of music and Aretha Franklin. You know, where can people reach out to you, you know, in general to find out more about your musical career and also just generally find yeah. out more about what you've been involved with over the years? Sure, sure. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I have a website. I finally this year decided it's time to get dust, dust it off and get it ready for the world, so to speak. So that's actually my name, www.davidnathan.com. And um, there's lots of posts on there. There are posts about some of my early years. Yeah, I'm doing regular posts under the name, under the Diary of a British Soul Man. Uh, you can sign up for the mailing list. Very soon we're going to be uh, announcing something exciting for people who join the mailing list. 
a special offer, so to speak. <laughs> I'm not going to say what it is yet, but uh, yeah. So I'm trying to. You know, that's really how to stay in touch with what I'm up to and communicate with me. Um, you know, because there's an email address on there as well. Um, so yeah, that's that's how to find out what's happening in my world, so to speak. So in that case, it'd be lovely to talk to you somewhere down the line, David, when you announce obviously what that mailing this thing, and you know, keep in touch. It'd be lovely to talk to you about other artists and you know other key albums over the years as well. Yeah, absolutely, I love it, Jamie, and thank you again. I want I want to make one little quick plug for one other thing. So one of the projects that came out in the last few months is also a nine CD box set that I co-produced on Phyllis Hyman uh, called Old Friend, the Deluxe Collection, and so. Um, if at some point you want to have me come back to talk some more about that and some of the other reissue work I'm doing, I'd be more than happy to do that. No, certainly. And let's say we'll put all the details of both of those boxes on our social media feed as well. And we're going to finish off this interviewee, David, with a couple more tracks from this new Aretha box set. The first one is a great demo version of Until You Come Back to Me. And then after, we're going to play Mr. DJ, Five for the DJ. So thanks very much for your time, David. And thank you very much for coming onto the show this afternoon. Absolutely, and thanks again for your time, Jamie. I appreciate it very much. I think that's what sets it up. One, two, three, now. One, two, three, four. No, you don't fall.
track now.
And that's two more tracks then from the brand new Aretha Franklin box set, Mr. The DJ, Fire for the DJ. And before we add, Until You Comes Back to Me, a great demo from that box set. And thanks once again for David for coming on to the show this week, having a really in-depth chat all about the box set and obviously some of his career in music. And it'd be nice to talk to him somewhere down the line.